gaining trust is the key that I've found in my success. And the best way to get trust is to find truth and to speak truth. Every business I've been in that I took over, I can tell you one truth. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the Sidcast. Sid here, Sid Finkelstein, and I'm going to be talking to Blair Lacourt today. Blair's an old friend, and I'll describe some of the things he's done. He's just really an interesting guy. I don't know, every now and then you come across someone, and yeah, I've known Blair for a number of years, but you come across someone, and it's like his brain doesn't work the same way as the average person works. And that's a compliment. Blair, that's definitely a compliment. I mean, he's smart, really, really smart. There's a lot of smart people around, but he's also creative. He thinks differently. He's unafraid to try different things. I mean, he's able to immerse himself into topics and issues and at the same time have a pretty good time. Uh, you know, years ago, I created a summer camp up at Dartmouth for uh, alumni and Blair decided to come back and do it. And I remember, you know, we were doing a lot of stuff, canoeing on the Connecticut River and all kinds of things, but also some more intellectual pursuits. And that guy can talk. Blair Lacourt. And I remember he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm talking so much, but the way my brain works is that I think as I'm talking and the talking helps me work out my thinking. And, you know, ordinarily you hear somebody say something like that and you say, oh my God, how am I going to put up with this? But the pace of his translation from, you know, speaking to thinking back to speaking again is pretty unbelievable because you could talk with Blair about just about any topic and it's going to be interesting and you're going to learn something new and you're going to learn something about uh, about him. You know, sometimes you meet people, they're just really interesting. They could speak at length on multiple topics, and they're, they're a lot of fun to be with. And, uh, you know, other times you come across someone who's really competent, you know. He or she knows how to make things work. They know how to make things happen. They can accomplish great things. And Blair Lacourt, I mean, I don't want to build him up too much. He's just a regular guy in many ways, but he's one of the few I've met over the years that has both of these things going on this kind of natural, interesting, engaging, fun side, and this kind of ultra-competent, capable person that can, uh, you know, whatever he seems to turn his attention to, he, uh, he makes it happen and makes it happen at a pretty good pace. You know, what he's doing now is he's working for a company called uh, AI. I don't know if that's how they pronounce it, but it's capital A, capital E-Y-E. So A-I-E-Y-E. And it's an artificial, they call it artificial perception pioneer. But really what they do is they develop technology that enables vehicles, moving vehicles, to see what's going on around them. And obviously that's a central component in the entire self-driving car movement that Tesla has started in some ways, but everyone is working on it. And AI is a company that's going to be a supplier to just about, they hope, just about everyone who's, uh, who's in it. And we talk about you know automobiles a lot in this episode, not only, as you'll see, but just as an example of how, you know, you start to think about things in an interesting way and sometimes a different way when you talk to Blair, talking about seatbelts and how it took a while for seatbelts to become a thing for people to start using it. And, and then automatic, you know, braking uh, that many upscale cars have that as a standard feature now. And apparently 20% of the people surveyed thought it was worth anything and would even want to try to use it. 
And that went up to, you know, 80 or 90% within a number of months. Obviously, also components of self-driving automobiles. And we didn't talk about this that much. But as I reflected on, uh, you know, what I wanted to say to introduce Blair, because I always record the introductions after the episode has been recorded so I can think about it and kind of reflect back on some of the things we talk about. But this conversation on seatbelts, this conversation on automatic braking and what it takes for people to start to use these technologies, sometimes simple technologies that are actually good for them, right? They're safe. I can't help but think about masks and how here's a technology, unbelievably simple technology, but a technology nonetheless that absolutely works, that greatly reduces your chance of picking up COVID or of spreading COVID to anyone else. And yet in America, there is a uh, minority. I don't know quite how big that minority is. It's not evenly distributed around the country, but there's definitely a minority and a vocal minority who believe that you don't need masks or masks are not that important. And it's unbelievable how some people stick with it. Maybe, you know, that's what they said when seatbelts came out that they weren't going to use seatbelts. Or how about motorcycle helmets, which I think close to half of the states in America actually do not require motorcycle uh, helmets. Obviously, something that can not only help you, but save your life. And many people don't think it's worth anything. It's really kind of intriguing, isn't it? Anyway, when I'm talking to Blair, we talked about a lot of things around artificial intelligence and cars. You know, what happens if the software makes a mistake? I mean, that's really a disaster, right? But who's going to make, who's more likely to make the mistake, the software or the individual, the person, the human who's driving a car? And I think we know what the answer is. And then there's the issue of, you know, how do you code? How do you do this coding so the car will make the optimal decision? Which leads you to, well, what is the optimal decision? And which leads you to, well, who decides? How do you know what the optimal decision really is? You're driving along and you're going to hit or on track to hit an old lady who's crossing the street and she's crossing the street against the light. And what do you do? Do you stop? Of course you try to stop. But what if that means you're going to swerve out of the way, maybe ram into a small Honda Civic that's driven by a student who's on her way to school? I mean, these are tough decisions that humans are not well designed to figure out in lightning speed that we have to. But these are the things that are being built into artificial intelligence systems that are going to be in cars and that will be required, really, for our world of self-driving cars. And it's just one of the many things I talk about with Blair that I think is just so, so interesting. You know, he's the president of this company, AI, that I just mentioned, but he was also the global president of a company called PRG, which probably very few of you know what that is, but it's the world's largest live event technology and services company. They do or did in pre-COVID days, just about all the Broadway shows and the rock concerts around the world and all sorts of other things. And he was the president of that company. Before that, he was the CEO of Exojet, which is um, aviation and private charter company in North America. He's been part of TPG, which is one of the top private equity firms in the country for a number of years. But he's also worked in a whole bunch of different companies, often with technology as a central kind of theme across these companies, but very different types of technologies. You know what he's doing now? Well, he's the president of AI, but he's also an investor and an astronaut in training, maybe unsurprisingly, right, for Virgin Galactic. And he's buddies with Richard Branson and has invested in uh, Branson's for-profit company, which is designed to send into space people who want to go as a uh, pretty upscale, hyper Disney type of thing. And I think it costs a lot of money to get one of those rides, and it's got to be a crazy thing, but that's what he's doing. He's also an investor in this company. It's called Moon Express that does robotic spacecraft systems. I mean, this is just 
interesting person. He's done a lot of things, continues to do a lot of things. And, you know, from a leadership point of view also, I want to also say that this is a guy who's been a leader of many different types of companies, and they're very, very different types of companies. And how do you do that? What are the skill sets that transfer across situations? And which are the ones that are more unique to an individual industry? That's like a big, big issue when you think about talent and you think about people. And for all of us, you know, all of my listeners, you know, as you think about, for those of you that are, you know, in the midst of your career or managing your career and think about the next stage, what can you transition to? And can you learn multiple things? Should you become a consultant when you end up doing five different things for two or three years? Or should you work in a company and have a deep dive and become an expert in that industry? I could tell you from my MBA students and from you know, younger alums that are that are still contemplating and managing this, this is very much top of mind. And, and Blair has a pretty interesting point of view about that as well. So let's get the show on the road and let's start the SIDCast with Blair Lacord. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein at my headquarters in my dining room here in Hanover, New Hampshire. Our guest today is an old pal and a really interesting guy, an executive and leader, Blair Lacord. Hey, Blair, how's it going? It's great. It's great. Excited to be talking to you. Where are you calling in from? I am in lovely Tiburon, California, and uh, actually calling in not from my office, but my son's bedroom since his gaming system has a better connection than my work system. I guess a sign of the times. Yeah, I bet lots of people are nodding their heads listening to that. (laughs) So there's a lot of parts to your career that are really interesting, but I want to start with what you're doing now. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now at work and the company you're leading? Sure. We have a company called AI, which I thought was one of the coolest uh, little tricks because it's spelled A-E-Y-E. So we were actually able to make everyone say AI or artificial intelligence every time they look up our company. Um, And it's a company that's actually based a lot on my past. And it's a bunch of guys who had a lot of military experience, who used to develop missile defense and automated targeting systems. About six, seven years ago, they decided that if we could build these sophisticated systems to destroy missiles, why couldn't we build the same robotic vision systems to help not kill people with autonomous cars? So we call ourselves a robotic vision system. One of the main markets that we sell into today is autonomous cars, anything from the safety systems that you use on the highway or backing up to fully autonomous cars that drive without humans. So my daughter just bought a car. Let's see what it is. It's a Mazda... I don't know what it is. It's a, She's going to be mad at me now for that because she just got it and she showed it off. And one of the reasons she bought it is because it's got every gizmo you can get for a mid-priced car. 360 degrees on the uh, on the cameras and all kinds of bells and whistles. Uh, it'll move you if you're straying a little off the edge of your lane. It'll move you. It's exactly what a dad wants for a new car for their kid. Do you, you guys make any of those capabilities? So those are called ADAS systems. They're a driver assist systems. And kind of like one of the ironic and maybe counterintuitive parts of those becoming popular is it's really based on the fact that global manufacturing competition on low-cost cars has reduced the margin in the automotive business. So while the margin became reduced, car companies started to look for systems like these safety systems that they could add in to at least build some margin into the car. The reason I say it's counterintuitive and ironic is because you really have a difficult time when you're selling a durable product saying, I want you to pay extra for safety. And in the last five or six years, however, 
Uh, the car industry has actually sensitized people with daughters and sons and with babies that ES yeah, sensor systems to uh, increase safety are actually worthwhile. So it is the hottest trend. Now you see everything from the systems your daughter has in her car to uh, systems like Tesla has where they're actually calling it an autopilot, even though it's truly not autonomous driving. So we look at that market as a spectrum. So there were a lot of companies who went to build just safety systems, which are point systems that do one thing over and over and over again. There are other companies that have gone out to build a fully autonomous car. Because of our architecture, we've built systems that can be applied when you scale them down to either market. And that's kind of our claim to fame, is that we look at autonomy as a spectrum, depending on what you're willing to integrate into your vehicle or to other transportation. So who are you selling your technology to right now? Does Tesla have some of this and others? So in the automotive market, you have OEMs, which you'd know the names of the Teslas or the GMs. You also have a very, very silent, powerful group of people called tier ones. So most cars are actually made by tier ones and they're assembled by the brands. The brands themselves, they put money into design, they put money into marketing and channel, but the cars, the technology that goes into most of your cars are made by people named Aptiv or LG has a large division. So we influence the OEMs and we show them what we can do. But in reality, a lot of our customers for inline integration are these 20 to 30 powerful technology integration companies around the world. In other markets outside of automotive, we do sell you know direct to people like intelligent traffic systems or trucking or trains. Anything that, that moves, we actually are appropriate for because we can actually give them more information about the environment around them. So how big is the company? Is it still private? It's still private. I use one of my terms my dad used in the past. We're just big enough to matter. We've got a big personality and everyone knows who we are, but we're small enough to adapt. So most of the companies we compete against have over a billion dollar valuations and 500 to 2,000 employees. We're well under 100 employees. And we like to think of ourselves as fast and flexible. So we do a lot of different types of partnerships to get to market. So where's the best technology coming from? I guess you're going to say AI is one of them, but is China ahead here? Is Germany ahead? What's the story there? It's a great question. And it's something that we don't talk about a lot. You hear about China being ahead in things like AI and how they're investing in pharmaceuticals and things like that. They're also investing heavily in autonomous cars and autonomous traffic systems. And the reason I say that this is important and it's not talked about enough is that when you take a look, I, I look at you know, there's many, many waves, right? But there are three very, very large waves that have changed the way technology and what I would say data has been transferred and manipulated, which is where the real money is. You know, the first came with the internet when we made communication basically free. So you could market a company, you could change your company, create a company that couldn't be existed before. A second was when the smartphones came out, we moved from the BlackBerry, my favorite, favorite thing to more of the flexible smartphones where data processing became free. I have the power of a space shuttle on my phone so I could process offline. The third wave, ironically, is going to be where logistics is free. So while most people think about autonomous cars as an integrated system, when you realize that what's happening is that those cars are transferring data, you now have data transfer being very inexpensive, data processing being very, very inexpensive. And now you can have moving objects 
you can actually bring the cost of logistics down to less than a dollar per mile. And the reason I say this is important is because if you look at those three waves, the United States drove most of the standards in the internet. And in fact, they controlled the agency that controlled the standards. In cell phones, Europe and the United States did most of the standards. In objects that move and free logistics, you now see the Chinese with Huawei doing not just the routers for communication, but the routers for highways and things like that. And you see them spending heavily, heavily on making assets smart. So when you think about cars being smart, it's basically using the Internet of Things to transfer data. I think that China will actually be an equal partner, if not a dominant partner, in setting the standards on how information for moving objects is actually processed. And that is a major change in the way the world works to have China being in the lead there. So they layer AI on top of it. But really, the capability to transfer data on moving objects is very, very powerful. Wow. Is Huawei the company that's in the news a lot because of security concerns, uh, mostly in the U.S., but into Europe as well? Right. Well, almost every company that's transferring data in China is in the news. You know, the drone companies and Huawei is the telecommunications company. But they've thought of a they very much look at autonomous cars as part of a moving ecosystem, not just as a way to charge an extra two thousand dollars per vehicle. It's a very different way. They have a system and they're helping to fund an ecosystem of companies around both the cars, the infrastructure, the processing of the data and analysis of the data. But is there any concern that anyone should have about security if we're going to have major Chinese companies dominating how the Internet of Things looks, especially for transportation, especially given all the endless fighting going on between the U.S. and China and it looks like it's going to get worse before it gets better? Spoiler alert, from my perspective, I think it is one of the major things we're going to have to look at with China. Now, today, they also are hiding it, or I wouldn't say hiding it, or optimizing it in a different way. Given the size of their internal automotive business, they're able to actually deploy this earlier, and they are deploying it within China. And at some point, we'll have to make the decision if they have better products that are less costly and more efficient will we allow it into our assets or not? And I think the bet is they're going to actually outcompete us and we'll have no choice, not because we're told to do it, but because it makes so much sense. So they're moving very, very quickly to build out their internal Chinese systems. And then I think they'll offer us products and say, do you want something that's better than what you have today? Could you uh, kind of draw the picture for listeners on what the world's going to look like and when it's going to be that we'll see all these autonomous cars all over the place? And how's that going to work? It's like a million questions you could think of that come up. And everyone said it's coming and you can see benefits. So let's start with this. how close are we and what's it going to look like in everyday life when this happens? Sure. You know, in full disclosure, um, at TPG, we invested in Uber early on. At I'm a personal investor also in Lyft. I was on the board of Silver Car, which was sold to Audi, which is the biggest rental car company doing mobility. And when I was at TPG, I was part of the team that bought VSLI, the biggest van pooling company. So what I would tell you is that mobility is here and it's here to stay, the optimization of being able to make assets more efficient. What we're talking about here is taking the next step, which is making assets more efficient and taking the human out of the asset right? Where you reduce costs, theoretically, you increase utilization per day because no one gets tired. And theoretically, you increase safety because these systems will be better. What you saw over the last couple of years is a huge push towards making these robotic taxis, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the DDs, 
um, taking the driver out and making them more efficient so those companies could make more money. And to estimates, I think about $100 billion has been put into R&D globally to make that happen. To think of that in perspective, that's the equivalent of going to war and having the R&D systems all focus on how to take something to the next level. So for instance, in Desert Storm, GPS got brought to the next level. In Iraq, it was RFID. So we've had a huge investment over four years. What has happened, however, is that what these companies have figured out is that in order to have a robotic taxi that people would trust that's 10 times better than a human, you have to solve a problem of what's called open loop, which is you don't know what you'll do, but you can handle anything that comes about, right? And the open loop problems in technology are very, very difficult, even with AI and simulation. The other major mistake that they made is none of the companies that they wanted to sell to actually owned assets today. Uber doesn't own assets, neither does DD, neither does Lyft. So the companies, in order to buy an autonomous car, which we can make a car drive today pretty well, right? In order to do it, you not only have to take the risk that 5% of the situations may cause a problem because it's open loop and you can't simulate them. You also have to then go buy the asset. And so the reason that you've seen a slowdown in the Waymos and things is because the business model hasn't come to fruition yet. So I would tell you that what's happening is that technology that was prototyped for a fully autonomous car is going into what you said earlier with your daughter. All of it's being used to actually make cars smarter that humans are driving. And as those cars continue to use this technology, the costs are going to drop and the technology is going to get better. I think you'll see a big boom in the next three to five years of fully autonomous cars. But in the meantime, what you're seeing is the application to just make assets that exist today in business models that exist today better. So you'll hear about trucking, automated trucking when it's on the highway. You'll hear about ADAS, safety systems in your autonomous car. You'll hear about ITS, which is having stoplights be smarter about how to manage traffic or see someone coming around a corner. So autonomy hasn't stopped, but the robo-taxi market has slowed down and all of this autonomous technology is being funneled into these more closed loop, more specific use cases. So don't give up on it. I think you're going to see three to five years, a big change. And I think you'll see it in a hybrid way. There'll be certain routes and certain cities that will have autonomous cars and other places that it'll be 10 to 15 years before it makes sense. Can you have autonomous cars and good old fashioned cars on the same road at the same time? Well, that's been part of the issue when I say open loop solving all the problems is these whole ideas of if every car has the same rules, very easy to model it. Mm -hmm. But if a human's going to cut you off, how do you see a lateral entry and what do you do and how do you make the decisions around that fast enough and which car would win, a human or not human? We're getting better and better at it. But again, I think you're talking about closed loops where a shuttle goes around a campus and there's absolute rules or a truck on the highway has absolute rules, you're not going to get to solve those software or processing type problems in all of the situations for maybe another three or so years. Even then, you know, three, four, five years from now, you see how people drive. <laughs> and especially now with many people glancing down at their techs or take a look, and it seems like it's gotten worse, not better. I don't know. Is AI and other technology, are they actually capable of modeling the infinite ways? And here's where the debate is. It's probably not infinite. It's probably finite, but I'll just stick with infinite. Infinite ways in which humans can kind of screw up at any point in time. Well, you know, again, this comes down to the fact they didn't add safety belts in for a long time and people were getting killed in cars because they couldn't charge for safety and they didn't want to talk about safety. If you could cut the situations where 
people are at risk down by 99%, would you do it? Of course you would do it. So to your point, there will always be these 1% of unpredictables. And the challenge is to convince humans that technology is to be trusted more than humans. There's been a lot of psychological studies that have been done when technology makes a mistake and a human makes the same mistake, people are five times more likely to forgive the human and believe the human will learn than the technology when we all know the opposite is true, right? That the technology is going to learn much, much faster than the uh, human. So this is more a battle of psychology than it is battle of technology being perfect. I'll give you one example that maybe your listeners will relate to. When automatic braking came out, the average uh, confidence in automatic braking was in the low 20%. One year after automatic braking came out, the confidence in automatic braking and the positive net promoter score was at 85%. Now, why? Because people actually saw a feedback loop where they saw it do it. Now, the dirty little secret of automatic braking is back in those days, 50% of the automatic braking were false positives. But because people were able to experience it, they slowly became comfortable with technology enhancing them because they did see the times when it really mattered. So I think part of this has to do with technology. Part of it has to do with change management and the acceptance of giving up some control. You think that these systems could approach the safety record of major airlines? Well, you know, if you think about major airlines, back to my concept, and this is a military concept we used in Iraq and Afghanistan, is that aviation is a closed loop system, right? You go from point to point. So you know exactly where you're going. And while you may not know every issue you're going to deal with, you can focus on just the issues that you have between two points. The second part about aviation is that most of the systems in a plane are mechanical systems that are run for thousands and thousands of hours so that you see type one and type two type error. The issues in aviation today that you see around safety, having run an airline in the last 10 years, have been around the software or around the training of the humans to trust the software too much. So I don't think given the number of assets that are moving simultaneously and the fact that you're never going to have a system that is as closed loop, that you're going to get all autonomy to be as safe. But I can tell you, if we have trucks going from depot to depot, they run the same route. We have designated lanes for these trucks. Of course, we can make that closed loop and the mechanical systems efficient enough to have confidence. So it's an issue of what you care about and how open the system needs to be. Yeah, and that's why when you say it's really about the psychology of humans, at some point, people are going to say, okay, we're good with it. We understand it. And we're willing to do that because we understand the safety levels are high, but we also understand it's very beneficial for us. And some people, of course, probably many people are there right now, but many people are not, not yet. So how did you get involved in this business, Blair? In some ways, I'm an accidental tourist, or I'm, as my dad would say, it's better to be lucky than smart. I had been running the world's largest live entertainment company, and I was having a great time. And I had a bunch of changes where I believed that I needed to spent uh, more time with my kids. I couldn't keep taking them to places around the world. We used to run all the live concerts around the world and the big shows, live shows. So I decided to step back and become an investor and do school lunches and such. And in doing that, I happened to run into a friend who we had crossed many years ago when I had a DOD company. And he had talked about this concept of repurposing defense technology to find things to kill it to be able to find things not to kill it. And so I started as a passive investor. I ended up getting sucked in as the chief of staff part-time. 
and then got hooked into, once you start, got hooked into coming on full time. So I've been with the company three years, but I've seen you know it from the very, very early stages, pre-A round through where we are today, which is implementing a product to major OEMs. Right, right. So the live entertainment business, what is going on? Is it going to, I mean, maybe eventually come back. How could it not, right? But is it dead now? What's going on? Yeah, you know, our company, unfortunately, lay off 2,700 people. There are no live events. And we ran all, every show on Broadway. And the there are some smaller live events, but what you don't need a major company to uh, run them. So what I would tell you before COVID, what we were finding is that live entertainment was growing about 22% a year. And the reason it was growing 22% a year, in my mind, I always try to find the truth of a business, was because people were becoming more disconnected and that they loved the energy and not to be um, too airy-fairy about this. I'm a big believer that we pass energy within small groups of people and within large groups of people, having stood on stage behind a band who's got 70,000 people yelling at them at the same time. So we were seeing that live entertainment was growing because technology was growing. So therefore, I do believe that live entertainment will be back. I think we need it. I mean, we communicate verbal, nonverbal, but we also need that proximity and the energy transfer that that proximity gives. I do think that this is going to be a two to three year transition, and it's uh, brutal for both the artists, who I would say the people who work for us were also artists. When you drive four hours, set up Lady Gaga's concert for four hours, tear it down for two hours, and then drive eight hours... These guys were also artists, and it takes 20 years to figure out how to actually be able to put up audio, video, and scenery, and everything that goes with uh, one of those shows. So my heart goes out to both the live artists, but also these 5,000 people around the world that actually put on most of the, the live shows. Yeah. I was talking to a couple of people who are in the uh, theater business, and they talk about it in terms of just a, a visceral loss. It's just something so central to how they think about the world and their own lives. And one is a well-known director, but the other one is not. He's got some concerns financially because, you know, the job is done. There are no gigs to be had. And then I think about the classroom and so many schools, including Dartmouth and Tuck School, are going to start online, probably will go to hybrid at some point in the fall term. But most schools are going to, no matter what they say now, are going to end up being online for the most part. And I know from having done that in the spring term with my MBA students, that while it went extremely well for me and just about everyone else who taught, something was clearly lost. When I walk into a classroom, a physical classroom, within seconds, I've been doing this for 30 years. So within seconds, I know the ethos in the room. I just, you just know it. It's a sixth sense, but I can't figure that out when I'm looking at the little squares, you know, the little zoom boxes. And it's a loss. It's a big loss. No, I, th I think this is a gut check for, you know, not to be melodramatic, but a gut check for humanity. We really do need energy transfer. Well, again, there are some people on a normal curve who are maybe don't need as much and certain people who are hypersensitive to it. But for most of us, part of our day is energy transfer and interaction with people. And I think that's part of the reason we're having such a problem with stay at home is that, you know, even going to the coffee shop in the morning and having someone smile that, you know, and you smiling back matters. And they've shown that that energy actually changes your RNA. So I do think that while we may talk about it in these cliche type terms, that we're not designed as beings to not transfer energy. And I think that we're going to have to figure this one out and figure out how to do it better. And, you know, part of that is just wearing masks and being able to be at least closer to people than not. 
Right. So Blair, you grew up in the East Coast in Maine or in Massachusetts? Both in Maine and then down to Massachusetts and then back to Maine for college. What town was it in Maine? Well, I was born just south of York. And then I ended up going to high school in a town on the North Shore of Boston called Beverly. The Beverly Panthers, our uh, rivals were the Salem Witches. Nice. Um, and so what was it like growing up in Maine? I mean, what did your parents do? I had the best of worlds and maybe the worst of worlds, which was my stepfather and mother ran a small airline, which sounds very sexy, but was a ragtag thing. Um, the show Wings was based off of Cape Air and a little bit off of my family's airline as well. We had all the kids working in the airline. You know, you'd get up at 4 a.m. and scrape bugs off of things and get them going. My father was a recruiter and had his own business, which was a service business. So I saw two entrepreneurs growing up. And at the time I decided to go to college, I was absolutely convinced I needed to go get a business degree because I never wanted to be an entrepreneur ever. Because, you know, when you worry about, you know, what's going to happen at the end of the month with your rent and you always have people screaming at you uh, because you're a small company or something's broken and there's no training, I thought there's got to be a better way. So I, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, I went to University of Maine to uh, get a degree in business, hoping to never actually be in a small company again. Your career is a career of entrepreneurship. That's what it is. That's the irony in the whole thing. I mean, you run some big companies, you've been in advisory work, but as far as I know, maybe there's something I missed that almost everything has been entrepreneurial. Yeah. And, you know, and I try to, to, you know, later in my career, I try to be pragmatic and correct people because I've never really been an entrepreneur. I've never bet everything on a credit card. And I had an idea that I thought I was going to throw up if it didn't happen. What I think happened to me in my youth, you can look at the good and bad was that I learned to deal with entrepreneurs and at a very young age became someone who tried to figure out how to put processes in place to get rid of the volatility. So I find myself being drawn to entrepreneurs once they've started something and to be a compliment to them. I'm very entrepreneurial, but I'm really driven towards either fixing something or growing something that maybe someone else has started, but I can use them as a leverage point to add value beyond that. Right. Now, I do think growing anything requires entrepreneurial skills also requires knowing how to make the trains uh, run on time, which is something that's kind of operational excellence is something that's a big part of what you've done as well. Now, you mentioned Afghanistan, you mentioned Desert Storm. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, one of the things I got involved with, again, I don't think I've ever interviewed for a job. I've kind of fallen into jobs and they've all been, to your point, they've been entrepreneurial, but I've switched industries eight different times, which to a lot of people at the beginning, they thought I was insane. But part of it was that I'm able to bring in people skills and patterns from other industries that maybe people who've been in one industry for 20 years didn't have. Two of my favorite stories are when I got out of uh, Tuck, I went to do some consulting and pay off my student debt. And we did change management. And I had actually been offered a job from the ex-head of strategy for GE. And he called me on a payphone. As we remember back then, I was in the airport. And I was afraid I was going to miss my plane. And he said, look, you should come work for me. Take some time off consulting for a year. Come work for me. I said, okay. My dad said I should work for people I respect. And I'm happy to do it, you know, but I have to catch this plane or they're going to find me in the consulting firm. So he said, okay, you're coming to work for Sun. Little did I know, fast forward, that it was not Sun Oil as I was organizing Mobile Canada with Sun Microsystems. And I was thrown into high tech as the head of strategy worldwide. So that was an example of 
me bringing in a bunch of skills and not knowing anything about what I was doing in the workstation business. The DOD was the same exact thing. We had taken uh, Vertical Net Public. We were the number one IPO. And then in 1999, and our venture capital company also was the number two IPO. So after burning every 24 hours, 23 and a half hours a day, I decided to take some time off and was sucked into one of my friends had a company he was spinning out of Raytheon and we were going to turn it into a commercial DOD technology into a commercial logistics business. And I thought it was a neat idea to repurpose military technology, foreshadowing what I'm doing now. It turns out that when you go to war, the first thing that they need on the tip of the spear is logistics. And our company went from 50% commercial, 50% DOD to 100% DOD overnight. And I got to experience uh, what it's like to be able to actually implement and execute what we would call agile development to we moved everything that moved through Iraq. I think we moved more vehicles than in, at that time in the history of the world had ever been moved. So again, learned a lot of things and brought a lot of lessons outside of the DOD into the DOD processes. Yeah. Did you end up going there as well some of the time? So yeah, that's part of the deal. People ask me often, you know, were you in the military? And my attitude towards it is I worked with the military and some of the greatest minds that I had ever worked with and uh, some of the people who protected us and made this stuff happen. You know, when you think about it, you don't realize when you see things on TV that an 18 or a 19 year old kid is out there with massive responsibility to either build something or to protect something. And it really did inspire me to show, you know, again, back to this connection with people, how when humans are under pressure, how they can actually rise to the situation if you have good training and you have an integrity in the system. What did you learn through this whole experience? You just shared one really, really big and important point about what the capability is of a human being and, and the prerequisites you talked about were training and, and integrity and there's probably a couple others as well. As you said, you've gone from industry to industry. It's pretty unusual. Eight industries or sectors, very unusual. And, and one of the things that makes you valuable for each place you go is you've got a portfolio of experiences that are very diverse that then can be brought to bear. But the question people often have about that is, well, what would have been relevant for you in the military or in live, live entertainment for what you're doing now or anywhere across the board? Can you share a little bit about it? I mean, I think I could see lots of possibilities, but many people in my experience have doubted that. They haven't really understood that. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, again, the first thing is you have to decide what you are really good at and what you enjoy doing. You know, I, you know, had eight brothers and sisters from two families who were both dysfunctional, both entrepreneurs. I spent a bunch of time. I was the oldest male. I was the only son of my two parents and everyone else was half brothers and stepbrothers and sisters. So I like to say that I was uh, forged in the world of ambiguity and the world of crisis. I don't know if I ever went to an event where someone wasn't fighting with someone else and blaming someone else in the room as well. So for me, I was very comfortable in problem solving and ambiguity. So the first thing was that was a place I could add value that maybe some others couldn't. The second is that I realized early on that it's a world of patterns and people and not a world of the industries themselves, right? So for instance, in the live entertainment company, one of the things that we were struggling with is when we won the Olympics, we'd been running it for 30 years. Uh, when you win the Olympics, first of all, we had to deal with Putin, which was a very difficult thing because of the dynamics around Russia. As you noted, the circles did not light up at the Olympics because they were outsourced to a 
family member of a government official and not to us. But the second thing that you realized was that you had to bring all of this equipment in from all over the world and no company had enough equipment. So after you win the Olympics and you have to you go back and you win the summer and winter every year, you have to then go out and source. So I'm dealing with people who have been doing this for 35 years are the best in the world. And they went and they had to source from their competitors where they pay more because the competitors now knew that they needed the equipment and they hadn't won the big job. So they were going to upcharge you. I happen to sit down and say, well, why don't we do a reverse auction? Now, I'm dealing with the most sophisticated logistics people in the world. And they said, what's a reverse auction? Well, in the live entertainment business, no one had ever really thought about reverse auctioning. So we went out and did a test and we actually put up what equipment we needed. And they came back two weeks later and said, not only did we not get upcharged, we got all the equipment 30% less. And they did because there were a bunch of guys out there in Boston or Atlanta that their son was going to college and they wanted to just get some stuff off the shelf or their wife needed a new minivan. These are actual stories because I went back and called and said, why did you rent us this equipment? That innovation, the reverse auction had been around since I was at Vertical Net. You know, we had popularized it, yet they had never seen it. Once I brought up the idea, I didn't implement it and I didn't customize it, but they took it and that inspired them. And that did two things, right? One is that it allowed me to add value um, in a place that they couldn't have because their biggest strength was their weakness. They'd only been in one industry. The second was that ability to bring something created trust, which then allowed me to get more information from them and to continue to grow the company. What I can tell you is that there's absolutely an advantage in coming from industry to industry because you know people and you know different patterns. But the biggest challenge you will have is in the first six months, everyone in that industry will say, who the heck is this guy who thinks he's so smart that he's coming from outside our tribe that he wants to actually tell us what to do? So gaining trust is the key that I've found in my success. And the best way to get trust is to find truth and to speak truth. Every business I've been in that I took over, I can tell you one truth. We became the most efficient airline in the world and the largest charter company in the United States when we were structurally bankrupt and we were number 15 when I took over because we figured out that stage length and cycle time were related to each other, which meant that the longer the flight was, the lower every single cost was, including the pilots, the maintenance, the fuel, um, everything that went along with it. That was a truth that everyone in that business knew, but had never actually thought about. So we just started flying long flights. When I was in the live entertainment business, the truth was we had 3,000 people. And it turned out that the average person in live entertainment has 20 years experience before they can actually run a show. And so there were a limited number of them in the world. And we didn't even know because we had many offices, 44 offices, which people had what experience. So it turned out that putting a fellows program together and elevating people who were proud of their industry stature allowed us to not only retain, but keep more people than anyone had ever done. So every business ends up with a truth. And if you enter a new business and you can help those people, like a consultant, articulate the truth and then motivate around it, you actually will get them to accept you and you'll get to make some change. You know what? It reminds me a little bit of some of the research about how people learn. And none of this or hardly any of this has been in a business uh, setting. And one of the greatest things that help people learn is by diversity or variety of experiences, because then you start to see the patterns. 
and you start to see the patterns, in fact, across different types of, I say you start to see, you have to be able to look, you have to know to look for them and be clever enough to begin to piece it together, that pattern recognition process. But at least you're in a position to do that. And it's actually a very interesting issue because, you know, a lot of MBA students ask about this, should I go into consulting or should I go into, I mean, I know I want to end up in biotech. I know I want to end up in manufacturing in the service sector, but maybe I'll go to McKinsey first. It's a great job. They pay a lot of money. I'll learn a lot. And then others say, no, I know this is where I want my career to be. And the advantage of the consultants is usually you're going to see more variety. I mean, not always, but I think you're more likely to see more variety, certainly than if you go to one individual company. So it's very topical. And then there's, I forgot the name of the book. Maybe you you will recall it. It's about generalists versus specialists. And it just came out in the last couple of years. And the upshot was through this research in a variety of different fields. And in fact, generalists, generalist skills are almost always more valuable than specialist skills. There are exceptions, of course. You know, the surgeon that has you on the table, you want some pretty serious uh, specialist uh, skills. But when it comes to leading, to managing, to building organizations, the general skills are often more important. I'll give you one other example from some of my own research on super bosses, these leaders that help develop some of the world's best leaders and run some of the best companies. They are almost always looking for people that have the willingness and ability or potential at least to go into and do a variety of different things because they like the ability of someone who has experience doing X to go into Y and look at it and say, well, why is it going on this way? This doesn't seem to make sense because I don't have my 20 years of doing the same thing and now I've bought into the whole thing. So it's quite interesting, these different strands uh, that kind of connect to what you're talking about. Right. I think, you know, again, this is my opinion, which is worth what you paid for it, which is uh, I don't think it has to be black and white that I went to consulting or I was in six or seven different industries. What I find is it's risk taking. So if I start in pharmaceutical and I go out to do sales, if I'm doing well in sales, I have the capability to move. Do I take another sales job, which is what everyone wants me to do? Or do I do a stint in operations, which will be considered a terrible thing to do by your manager? But I'm curious and I have the confidence to know I'm going to come back and run this company someday. And I need that experience in operations or logistics. You can find a way to move your way around even one company or uh, one industry, but you have to take risk. And part of the challenge is how we define ourselves. If we're defined by the external metrics of how much am I making? What is my title? How quickly have I moved? Versus did I learn all the fundamental skills of this business, the basic blocking and tackling, I played offense and defense, then um, you have a different view of what is a risk and what isn't a risk. And I think part of the challenge in capitalism is we're always driven towards growth, even when we should hunker down. And I think part of the outcome of that, as we look at career paths, is that we're always drawn towards what makes sense for you next in your career. When I was running human capital at Texas Pacific Group, we looked at a thousand companies a year. We bought about 91 companies a year. I very rarely met a CEO who didn't tell me, yeah, I want to be a CEO again. The reality is that some of them shouldn't be a CEO their next thing, but they had been brainwashed into thinking, if I step back, I'll never come out the other end again. And so most of my work was working with very talented people and convincing them to take jobs that would make sense if they stepped back from it. Uh, because they had just had kids and this was the right thing to do, or they had burned themselves out, or that they needed to learn something new and to uh, have some more time. And once I got them in that groove, a lot of them have come back to me years later and said, I just want to thank you. Because it's very, very difficult as a business person to admit that maybe I shouldn't be moving forward 
and that I should either move back or laterally. But by giving me a safe space to think about that, I was able to do it. So I just want to make the point to the listeners is that it sounds, you know, very difficult to say, I want to jump from industry to industry. This is about being curious enough to take a risk with your career or your time to try things that are different that make you uncomfortable. And I know I'm a big mouth, but I'm going to give you one more example, which is what I talk about, about why I went to Tuck. I got into another large business school in Boston. Um, I always hate that phrase. And I looked at it and I decided to come to Tuck because what I realized is something my dad had said to me early on. If you're in a big enough tribe, you will find a subset that makes you feel comfortable, a study group or a social community, and you will actually be able to gain traction earlier because you're feeling comfortable, but you won't learn as much in the long run. And by going to Tuck, it was so small that you had to have people that you interacted with that you actually at first didn't relate to, or in some cases didn't even like. But what you found is by forcing yourself to actually be curious and to have to find a way to learn something that wasn't easy for you, that ultimately I can now deal with a lot of different personality types. I can analyze people better. Even when I found that I don't necessarily want to hang out with someone outside of work, I've found a way to work with them. And that kind of respect I get by doing that allows them to actually be better people as well. So again, I think that it's not something dramatic, like I have to do these amazing things. It's putting yourselves in places and jobs and people that are not easy. And then living through it, if you ever want to do it again, that's great. But as you know, people would say, go out and carry a bag in sales. You may hate it, but later on in your career, you'll understand how business works. That's great advice. You really have had this kind of curiosity all the way through. And one of the areas I want to ask you about is your work as an astronaut in training. Is that still going on? Yeah, it is. It's been 10 years. It was only supposed to be three years, but life doesn't always, as they say, you know, the planning is kind of a great way to be disappointed. But I've learned an awful lot in the journey. In fact, I think I have learned more in the journey than I probably will when we go up next year, because throughout this, we've had a lot of problems we had to solve. I've met a lot of people that I never would have met before. We've gone on a lot of different events to keep ourselves engaged, like the solar eclipse and the Atacama Desert, or you know, a special bonding session with top scientists in the world on Necker Island. So it's been a journey, and I'm looking forward to it. We're very close. Give us a little background. So I know about this, but our listeners, what does this mean? astronaut training and that you're going up next year. What's happening? Richard Branson had a vision 12, 13 years back that if he could innovate getting people into space, even as a day trip, that he would also spark the use of commercial companies to actually work together to build an ecosystem outside of, say, a government defense system or NASA. Not to necessarily replace those systems, but to augment them. And it was very prescient, as you've seen when NASA's funding got cut back, that this ecosystem of companies, whether it's Blue Horizon, Virgin Galactic, which I'm an investor in and have been involved in, SpaceX, we all came to the conclusion that if we work together, we could actually help each other. So we have actually a spaceport in the Mojave Desert which ironically used to be one of the big transportation hubs in the country and then was abandoned when the railroads were reconfigured. And so all of these companies that you hear about, we actually work together, engineers help each other, and we've been trying to innovate, all having very complementary but different missions. 
So for Virgin Galactic, our goal was to build a reusable spaceship so that you could bring the cost down, you could go back and you could refurb it in less than a week or even someday less than a day. The space shuttle used to take 18 months to refurb. So while it looked like it was a plane that you could use over and over again, uh, by the time it re-entered the atmosphere, it was completely rebuilt every time. That's why it costs so much to get into space. Now, what's already flipped out of this pursuit that we've had is we now have a spaceship that can deliver low-level satellites much uh, more efficiently. We're also in the process of building a supersonic jet that can actually do uh, international travel. So by going after the dream of building a reusable spaceship that could deliver people into orbit, we have already started to spin off multiple businesses, and we took the company public earlier this year to continue the funding. So the three companies you mentioned, this is Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos? Right. Are those three companies that I mentioned? There's you know, a bunch of other companies. Those are the most visible yeah. because of their founders. Those three do have that one thing in common, these absolutely larger-than-life legendary founders. And does it take somebody like that to actually just do these, what most people would say is a crazy idea, and put yourself in a position to innovate in the way you're describing? I mean, is this... I think part of it has to do with personality. They are who they are because of who they are. But I think it also is the access to capital. So if you look at my business, which we talked about in probably painstaking detail earlier, think about who are the major players arising in that business. Amazon is buying a company called Zooks and a bunch of other companies. So Amazon will be one of the major players in autonomous cars. When you take a look at Cruise, which was funded by GM, that was a big technology company. Apple has a big thing. Microsoft has a big thing. So you're also seeing technology companies take on this big moonshot, excuse the pun, which is how to build autonomous cars. I think it's because they have enough cash and a long enough vision and that most of these big jumps today have to do with technology innovation, right? If you take a look at how we built this new spaceship, we were able to build it in a fraction of the time at a fraction of the cost. And a lot of that has to do with both the technology to manufacture and the technology to actually fly. So where will you be going next year? For the first set of astronauts, it's interesting. Uh, we use the word astronaut in training. It makes me feel good about myself because I always dreamed about that when I was a kid. There is actually an official international designation to be an astronaut. And it's when you pass over the Kármán line, which is a certain distance away from Earth, you are in space and therefore you are an astronaut. In fact, our test pilots have all been given their wings because there's an international organization. There's been I think it's, I can't remember the exact number now, 600 and something astronauts in the history of the world. So for us, we're going up, we're going past the Kármán line, we're hanging out in orbit for a little while, we're getting out and floating around inside the spaceship, we're taking a few pictures, we're doing an experiment, and then we're coming right back down. So it's the experience of seeing the Earth from space, which is um, something that if you talk to 99% of the astronauts, it's a life-changing experience because I believe you're not only disconnected from the magnetic influence, but you're able to see in perspective the Earth from afar. And it really is a psychological thing that they've documented. It absolutely changes your appreciation for both the Earth and how you connect with other people. So for us, it's a day trip. Under Armour designed our spacesuits. We just got a preview the other day uh, because we're not using the big pressurized suits because if something happens to the ship, we actually can descend in 10 to 15 minutes back into the atmosphere. We have a very unique way of re-entering so that we're not using the Earth's atmosphere to burn our way back in. We're actually um, coming down in circles and a very unique innovation. 
So we'll go up and we'll come back down. And then all of us have made a commitment that we'll work to help make the uh, world a better place using kind of that experience as a springboard. Wow. That is truly going to be an amazing, an amazing thing. You're probably the first guest of the SIDCast that I think is going into space. Well, see, I got that going for me. <laughs> got that going for you, for sure. Um, so we, we only have a little bit of time left. Let me ask you maybe for, let's say, some quick reaction to some famous people, mostly CEOs. Uh, and we actually mentioned a couple of them. And, and they're names that are always coming up. But, you know, you've had a different seat and continue to have a different seat than most people. And so uh, I'm curious to know what you think about these people. Let's start with Bill Gates. You can give us a dissertation on that, but in the space of 30 seconds or so, what's your reaction about Bill Gates? Well, well, it's interesting because for someone of my generation, Microsoft was the evil empire. When I was first in high tech, Bill Gates was a vicious competitor and feared. And in some ways, you know, your goal was to beat Microsoft at all costs. I actually, my first term that comes to my head is thoughtful. I've seen a couple people do this. Another one was one of the founders of TPG, Bill Price where Bill Gates and Bill Price decided I've done something, I have accumulated an amount of wealth that is good for me, and I'm going to stop and I'm going to do things that are going to make a difference in the world and that I love. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. So I actually look at Bill Gates as someone who I think will endure throughout history because he has actually transitioned to a place where you know his goal is to make the world a better place and to save lives, not just to be smart and to make money. So. It's, it's it, one of my heroes. Right. I think there's a deeper recognition amongst a lot of people. You know, Bill Gates is legendary name and, you know, people just associate with and mega billionaire from Microsoft and people that help him Microsoft a little bit better. I think that's the group that's having maybe a bit more of a reconsideration because of what he's doing with COVID and the vaccine work. And of course, what he's been doing for years on malaria, tuberculosis, AIDS and, and other things. It's uh, I don't know whether there is a precedent for this. For what he's doing. Okay. Jeff Bezos. I think endurance. I mean, when you take a look at where he started and how long he's been doing it and how many years, uh, Amazon, it's easy to see it now as, you know, the behemoth, but for years and years and years, Amazon was not making money and that he continued to trudge forward. I also think, again, we have a couple of my classmates work for Amazon today who I respect a great deal. And a lot of people will look at the culture and say, wow, it's, uh, it's a really tough culture. They're very hard charging and they push each other very hard. I think this endurance and this capability to sacrifice and push to make something bigger and better, like they did with the data storage business and things like that, you can love them or you can hate them, but you can't argue that he set out for a lifetime of work and has continued that. And now he's trained a lot of people to uh, to make that happen. He, I mean, he really has changed the world. If Amazon and FedEx didn't exist, I'm not sure what we would have done during this stay at home time. He's been, you know, a really an enduring driver of change. I don't want to get you in trouble, but I'll ask you about the president and you could pass if you want, uh, Donald Trump. I worked in some way or another in four administrations, both Republican and Democrats. It's probably not a fair question in some ways to me because I knew him before he was a president and I did not know any of the other people. So there was a somewhat of a distance and framework in the way that I thought about what they were doing. I think that Donald Trump, I will say in a politically correct way, was something that was driven out of the times. And people wanted change and they believed that a business person would be 
that kind of change. If you look back at it as far back as Reagan, the prediction was that there would ultimately be a president who either came from entertainment or from sports because with media, people got to know those people and that therefore they would be looking for change through people they felt familiar with. The sports analogy hasn't come true just because in a lot of ways they peak early in their career. But it was not a surprise that we got an entertainer, which I would say more than a businessman, into the Oval Office. And the question now is that we've got to decide, is it working or is it not working? I'm not necessarily a fan of some of the policies, but I also am steeped in national and global security. And I don't think we're safer today than we were before. I don't worry about as much as the domestic economy, because I do think that our economy can take a lot of different things and and adapt to it. So um, he's done some things for the economy that's helped it grow. I do worry about uh, national security and monetary policy because trade deficits really aren't our problem. If the dollar gets devalued and the Chinese uh, get to be one of the two currencies instead of just one currency, the United States will be in a very, very different place economically for the next 50 years. Yeah. The thing that is just challenging is the moral compass that exists uh, in our country these days. Some of that, maybe a lot of that rests at the foot of uh, one person more than any other. But I don't want to get any further into that. because (laughs) Listen, you know, again, I'm not trying to be that politically correct. I do think it's a wake up call that there were a lot of issues. And you may, as the saying often goes, sometimes the worst can bring on the best. And I think that by seeing some of the things that have been done, people are getting a chance to make a decision on what they believe in. And I think it's time that people step up and support what they believe in. We've had issues with immigration for 20 years. Congress has not passed a worker program. We've had issues with taxation where we couldn't bring money back globally for years and we didn't fix it. We've had issues with racial inequality for years and Congress didn't fix it. So while I would like to rail um, and I have been known to do so on individual politicians, especially the one that sits in the Oval Office, what I would tell you is that part of this breakdown has been redistricting over the past 20 years, which has caused such partisanism in Congress that we have not passed the laws that we needed to pass. Um, And it has opened up an opportunity for someone to come into, say, an executive office where decisions can be made unilaterally. And you're either going to like them or you're not going to like them. There's certain people who love it. Um, I have issues with some of the policy, but this, to me, is a manifestation of our political system, our lawmaking system not working. And I I hope we have a wake-up call there because... This is the greatest country in the world, and I very rarely go anywhere where someone doesn't want to have a house in the U.S. or spend time in the U.S., and uh, I'd like to keep it that way. Yeah, well, I hope that continues to be true. I think our track record in COVID and lots of other places is kind of a shake-the-head moment for a lot of the world. You know, the other thing is, and then I really do want to wrap up, is this is, as you say, such an amazing country with incredible entrepreneurship and business. We talk about Bezos and Gates and Richard Branson and others. And well, he's not American, but regardless, how is it that a country that produces so much talent in so many fields, and this is probably true for Congress, especially for the president, but certainly for Congress, just doesn't seem to be able to produce world-class talent where we need it the most. I mean, you know, you saw what happened to uh, Mayor Bloomberg, who has incredible capability, but not quite charisma and has made a couple of uh, steps along the way that make it very hard for him to have gotten the nomination. But even besides him, 
it's it's a puzzle. You know, it's a puzzle. A country that can produce what this country does that creates the level of business in these global leading companies and is so good at so many fields in entertainment and in sports that we end up with the Washington class that we end up with. Yeah, again, I do think that we need an overhaul and the way we look at financing of candidates and uh, term limits in candidates. I think that incentives create a draw for certain types of people. If you look at the Senate, for instance, 50% of the people are independently wealthy, and this is a uh, figurehead job for them that they want to keep, and that people who are rich want to be famous, and people who are famous want to be rich, and a lot of uh, wealthy people get drawn to public service for the power and the fame, in my mind, not necessarily to endure the pain. I mean, I have a a saying after having early on in life been on my home advisory board, you know, for the condo association, and then being on the yacht club, um, or being on the a bunch of um, nonprofits for underprivileged children, that community service hurts, or it isn't community service. And I think a lot of people who go into government, even the ones with good intentions, end up getting caught in the fact that if you're not risking and you're not pushing and you can't lose your job, you're probably not going to make change in a system that needs to be changed. So one of my biggest pet peeves in COVID is the fact that um, if you take a look at some of the things that Como did well, he actually had some contests for how do we convince people to wear masks? And they had video contests and everyone in the state, 100,000 people, and they made a big deal of it and they innovated and got the best commercials. It's shocking to me that we're not taking advantage of our capabilities for saying, let's give a million dollars in grants to people who come up with the best ideas on how to open schools, or let's figure out how to give a million dollars to people to figure out how to reconfigure new restaurants You know, as we move forward. We're just not bringing people together under a structure to get the best of what we have and to work with it and try things and to find solutions. I do believe that we're taking solutions from other places in the world and we're always referencing what Germany's doing or what someone else is doing. But it is my pet peeve that I can tell you that people want to help and that the leadership both nationally, I mean, and I think in a sense, um, on a statewide basis, isn't opening up those doors to make this an opportunity to serve your country because we are uh, facing something that is equivalent to a war. I do believe that. And it's not going away. Uh, Viruses have been around for a long time. As they showed us in that famous movie, War of the Worlds, when the aliens came down and they took over, as you guys remember, the way they got killed was the human flu, right? So the mightiest may not be taken down by the mightiest. They may be taken down by the smallest. And so we need to deal with the fact that it's part of who we are and where we are in, um, in evolution, that this is something we need to focus on, not in one moment in time, but over time. So Blair, wrapping up, I like to ask an advice question, and it's a specific type of advice because it's advice you'd give to yourself when you were a young man, when you were, say, 21 years old. And you can go right now, you can go back in time and go find that 21 year old who knows what he was doing, but you kind of go next to him and you lean over and you say, you know, Blair, if there's one thing you want to know about life, there's one thing you want to do or not do, what would that be? What would that advice be to your own 21 year old self? Well, I I have three, three children between the ages of 15 and 21 right now. So that's actually a thought that's on my mind almost every day. I'll give you two things that I would say to myself, and I do say to myself every day today. One is that the idea that there is a perfect life is something we constructed to make ourselves feel less anxious. 
And that while you can control some things, there's a lot of things in life that you don't control. So don't be fearful when bad things happen. It's more important to understand how to cope with bad things than it is to necessarily achieve good things. Because if you can continue to get up every day, you're going to find good things. The second is something that sounds cliche again, but is that love is the only thing that matters, kindness and love. I mean, at the end of the day, I've been able to meet and get to know some of the richest people in the world. And I've grown up and dealt with some of the poorest people in the world. And when it really comes down to it, um, it's not just on your deathbed. It's when you get up every day, if you're not having interactions that are bringing you positive energy. One of my friends um, wrote a book called Into the Magic Shop with the Dalai Lama around uh, his turmoils of you know, growing up and being rich and being poor and, and overcoming it. And it was, it's one of the great books that reminds us that finding joy in every day is really the key. And I always describe myself right now as I'm a recovering Luddite and an aspiring Buddhist. You know that I haven't used a computer in seven years. You got me to use a computer today because this podcast I couldn't do on my phone. Um, and the reason for that is because I found that the more technology I got close to, the higher up I got, the less intuitive sense I got of people. And there were enough people who knew technology and I wanted them to do my PowerPoints for me anyway. But this whole idea of aspiring Buddhists is that, look, you don't control everything. You're going to have suffering and suffering is part of the ability to learn. So if you, at the end of the day, don't feel like you've interacted in a kind way with someone, then you're probably not living the life that you want to live. So that's pretty heavy. I'm sorry, but you opened up the door. Yes, I did. And so you're, you're sharing that with uh, your kids too, in your own way. Yeah. In between me yelling, how can you leave the spaghetti out for three days? Yes. In between those lessons, yeah. I'm trying to get the philosophical. Listen, Blair, it's, uh, it's really fun to uh, talk to you. I'm sorry we, uh, we can't be in person again, but we will uh, hopefully in the not too distant future. Thanks for being on the SITCAST. It's been real fun chatting. Hey, thanks for having me. Take care, Sid. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.